Well, last week uh, we began a new sermon series on the full armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. And God has given us this spiritual armor because we are in a cosmic conflict with dark forces. We are in a spiritual war that's been raging throughout human history. But we talked about last week that our enemy is a defeated foe. Jesus Christ went toe-to-toe with sin, with Satan, with death, and defeated those through the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb. And Satan knows that he's lost this war. He knows he's a defeated enemy, that his days are numbered, but he is determined to slash and burn his way to his ultimate defeat. He wants to destroy as many people and as many things in God's good world as he possibly can. Now, as Christians, he cannot touch our eternal salvation. Our, our salvation is secure in Christ, but what he can do is he can destroy our reputations and our witness. He can distract and discourage us from our mission. And he can deceive us into powerless living. We looked last week at Paul's four pillars of combat readiness. What do we need to know if we're going to be ready for the combat that we face every day as followers of Jesus? And they're up on the screen and in your notes. Uh, this, this is from the first few verses of this passage. Paul tells us that we are enabled by God's mighty power. to be. We're to be strong in the Lord. We're enabled by His mighty power. We are equipped with God's armor, which is what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. And we're equipped with God's armor so that we can endure, we can withstand and stand firm against the schemes of Satan, his various methods that he uses to deceive us and distract us and discourage us. And one important thing, if we're going to endure those schemes, we've got to be able to identify our enemy. And our enemy is not flesh and blood. We don't war against other people. We war against spiritual forces of darkness in the world that are at work behind the scenes. And our marching orders are not to go on the attack into the enemy territory and defeat Satan ourselves. Remember, Jesus has already done that. Jesus has already invaded the territory of Satan. He's already been that light into a dark world. He's already come and defeated sin and death and hell and the grave. Jesus has already won the war. That's not our, our, our orders. Our orders are simple and clear. In fact, Paul repeats them four times in these first four verses. Uh, Even in the first word of verse 14 that we're going to be focusing on today, our orders are simply to stand. Stand firm. Resist the schemes of Satan. And the way we do that is by taking up and putting on this armor of God. The purpose of the armor is to help us stand firm, to help us to resist the attacks of the enemy. And so as we begin this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and I want to issue a challenge for us. A challenge for us to, and I know this word scares a lot of people, memorize. Memorize the armor of God. Now, I'm not going to ask us to memorize all uh, you know, verses 10 through 20. We're just going to memorize verses 13 through 18. And we've got six weeks to do it. Right? It's like a verse a week. 
And most of these verses are just pretty simple. It's just listing the parts of the armor of God. So I think this is an easy one for us to work on together. So I want to challenge you to join me in that. I've learned this before, but not in the Christian standard version of the Bible, which is what I preach from. So I'm going to be kind of having to rewire the way I say this as well. But if you want to memorize it in a different translation, that is fine with me. I just think it's important that we have this in our hearts and in our minds. So to help us kind of begin to do that today, uh, we're going to put this up on the screen. And I've got cards uh, here on either side of the platform and in the back. There are cards with this printed out in the Christian Standard Bible. So if you want to memorize it uh, along with the, the translation that I'm preaching from, you can pick one of these up, stick it you know, in your car, look at it at red lights, not while you're driving, um, put it on your bathroom mirror, you know, whatever. So uh, put it by your coffee pot as you're waiting for that that Keurig to make. You can, you can read over it or whatever. But I want us to read this together today. All right? So let's read this together out loud. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist. Righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. All right, so very good. I want you to work on that over the next few weeks and we'll find ways to incorporate it uh, maybe as a responsive reading or something in a couple Sundays. Of course, we sang a song this morning that that had a lot of this in it. We'll sing that again as well. And then on the last Sunday of this, we'll see if we can't all recite that together from memory. All right? So I think you can do it. I believe you can do it. Now, Ben kind of already hinted all that. I told Chris, I said, he's preaching my sermon. Let me, I'm just going to let Ben just take over from here. But he alluded to this some. But, you know, as I was studying this and I was preparing for this, the question that struck me is why does Paul start with the belt? I mean, you know, that's not exactly the most exciting part of a soldier's armor, is it? The belt. I mean, why didn't he start with the shield of faith, right? Like all Captain America style, you know? Or the swashbuckling sword of the Spirit, you know? I mean, it's just, there's so many exciting parts of this armor, but no, Paul begins with the belt. How many of you are wearing a belt this morning? Raise your hand. If you're wearing a belt this morning, see, they're ubiquitous, they're mundane. It's, a, it's the most forgettable part of, of your outfit. Maybe you've even forgotten your belt and gone out the door and be like, oh, I forgot my belt. You know, why does Paul begin with this piece of armor? I mean, I guess he means it when he says take up the full armor of God, right? I mean, he means everything, even the belt. So what does a belt do? You know, yes, it, it's pretty basic, but it's, it's essential. As Ben was saying, it holds all things together. It encircles us. It helps us to keep our shape. <laughs> it gathers us in, some of us more than others. You know, the belt kind of 
kind of brings your wardrobe together, right? It helps to keep my shirt tucked in and my pants at a respectable level, right? It's, belts are important. They're good for us. And for an armor, the belt kind of does. It holds all the pieces together. But also think about a belt this way. Think about like a carpenter or a police officer or, or a soldier with, with, with armor. Or I, I can't help it, but I'm kind of nerdy this way, but I think of Batman, right? What does Batman have? His utility belt, right? You've got to have some place to hang your gadgets and your gear. You know, I've, I've got to have a belt on so I can put my, my microphone right here and my, my receiver transmitter right there. So belts are important because you've got to put stuff on them. Maybe you are one of those people that carry your phone on your belt. I could never do that. I always popped it off all the time. But maybe you do that. You've got to have some place. And for the Roman soldier wearing this belt, that's where they would hang their sword. That's where they would even attach their shield at times. They'd have some place. So we have to have some place to hang the sword of the Spirit, to hang that shield of faith. A belt is essential. It's an important part of the armor of God. But it's not just any belt. It is the belt of truth. Think about that. Truth is what helps hold all things together. Truth encircles us. Truth helps us to put on and to keep in place all the parts of the armor. Truth is what our faith, our salvation, our righteousness, that's what those hang on. They hang on. They're built on the truth of God. Truth shapes us. Truth gathers us in its presence. Truth holds us fast. Just like the belt binds your waist, truth binds our hearts and our minds. And as we think about truth this morning, I, I do think about Pontius Pilate's question, what is truth? Because that is a very relevant question today. That's a question people today are asking. What is truth? Is there truth? Postmodernism tells us there is no truth. There is no objective standard of reality. There is no moral right or wrong that's absolute, that those things don't exist. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. You don't, truth doesn't hold and bind you. You hold and bind truth. Because truth is whatever you make it. Truth is whatever your opinion, your perspective, your lived experience. People today talk about your truth. You've got to live your truth as if your truth is different from mine or somebody else's. Truth is whatever you want it to be. Now, there are some seriously deleterious effects on society when we hold to this relativistic view of truth. Skepticism, cynicism, chaos are abounding in our culture. Cultures crumble. Families fall apart. Faith seems futile when there is no truth. One author said, if truth, is a con if truth as a concept is irrelevant, then Christ Himself is made irrelevant because He made the staggering claim to be the truth. That's in reference to John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So to get us to question truth, to get us to deny that truth, absolute objective truth exists, that's a pretty clever scheme on Satan's part. But it's not a new one. Satan is always 
been calling into question absolute objective truth. That's what he has done from the very beginning. In fact, just a few chapters before Jesus refers to himself as the truth, he says that Satan, in John 8, 44, he says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 12, 9 calls him the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. And Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians eleven three of Satan's scheme against us. Satan is working against specifically God's people. Paul says, but I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's a chilling warning for us. That our minds may be deceived. That we may be seduced. And I think each and every one of us should sincerely ask whether that's true. Is my mind being deceived? Is my heart being seduced from pure and sincere devotion to Christ? Because that's the scheme of Satan that we're going to look at today. That's the scheme of Satan, the belt of truth is meant to defend against. That Satan wants to deceive our minds and seduce our hearts. That's what he wants to do. And we see this crafty scheme played out in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. I want us to look at that and I want you to notice how Satan deceived Eve's mind and seduced her heart. In Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from the tree, uh, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Notice the first thing Satan did to deceive and seduce Eve. He doubted God's Word. It's the first thing. He doubted God's Word. Did God really say? My goodness, how many Christians have bought into the world's values and philosophies by that simple question. How many people have justified and excused their sin with that simple question? How many denominations and churches have been seduced from sincere and pure devotion to the way of Christ clearly depicted in His Word by that simple question? Did God really say? Did God really say that's wrong? Did God really say that's a sin? Did God really say that we're supposed to do such and such? Did God really say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father? Did God really say? And notice Eve's response to this question. 
Because this is always the outcome when we listen to Satan's deceptive and doubting question. Did God really say? Eve did two things. First, she subtracted from God's Word. See, Satan sowed the seeds of doubt in her mind about whether God was good and trustworthy. Whether God really loved her and Adam. Whether he really had their best interests at heart. Now, back in chapter 2, when God gave them the, the, the freedom to eat of the trees, he said they may eat freely from any tree in the garden. They may eat freely from any tree in the garden. It's generous. There's only one. One tree out of all the trees in the garden, only one, God said, don't eat from it. But all the other trees they could eat freely from. But when Eve quotes this back to the serpent, she omitted that word freely. Yes, we may eat from any tree of the garden. But then secondly, she then added to God's word. She subtracted by leaving out the word freely, but then she added to it, adding the words, or don't touch it. We can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden or touch it. We aren't to touch it. Now, when you read back in Genesis 2, God never says anything about touching it. Now, probably it's a good idea when God tells you not to do something, you probably shouldn't go up there and go out handling it, right? You know, it's like if there's a, if there's, you know, a, a cliff's edge, you put the guardrail back here, right? So that you kind of, but God never said that. Eve adds that. So what she does is she takes away that word freely, adds the word don't touch it, and she makes God's commands more restrictive, more harsh. She makes God seem less generous, less loving. That's exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to believe that God is holding out on us that God really isn't good, that God is a harsh taskmaster rather than a loving father. And Eve buys into that. Now, today we're just as prone to add to or take away from God's Word, to make it say what we want it to say, right? Or, or we just kind of buy into the lies that the world tells about what God's Word says rather than actually opening it up and reading it for ourselves and studying it. We, we are just as prone to that. And Satan wants us to question God's goodness and love. He wants us to distrust God's will and God's Word so that we'll begin to think that we know better than our Creator. So that we'll begin to believe that we can find fulfillment and happiness in life apart from the One who gave us life. So first, Satan doubted God's Word, but then secondly, he denied God's Word. Once he gets Eve questioning what God said and she starts to kind of tinker with what God said and and she says it her own way, then he just outright contradicts it. And he says, no, you will certainly not die. Now, I think it's important for us to remember that at this point, Adam and Eve had no concept of death. Death was not a thing. They couldn't conceptualize it. They couldn't understand it. They, they'd never experienced it in any way. All they had was to take God's word for it. All they had to do was to believe what God said about it. But here, Satan outright calls God a liar. He denies the truth that if they sin against God, their destiny will be death. He tells them, no, you will certainly not die. What do we deny? Believing Satan's lies instead. What truth is hard for you to see or understand? Because you've never experienced it. You know, people have rejected Christ for the craziest things, because they watched a TikTok video with some clever, some atheist who thought they were clever, asking a question that's been asked by theologians for thousands of years, but this person's never thought about it before, 
or they raise some something that, that you don't understand or you can't easily explain. And so these people turn from the faith. Listen, there are plenty of things I don't understand, can't easily explain, and have never experienced. Does that make them untrue? No. Of course not. But this is how Satan has deceived so many minds and seduced so many souls. Satan wants us to doubt God's Word because that only puts us a baby step away from outright denying God's Word. And then thirdly, we exchange God's Word for a lie. That's what Satan does. He doubts, then he denies, then he actually exchanges God's Word for a lie. He says, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Now this, my friends, is the big lie. This is the big lie that has plagued humanity ever since. In fact, Paul mentions this in Romans 1.25. He says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, if you look in the Greek, that's a definite article there. It's the lie. Paul actually says the lie. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Satan's big lie is that he, he wants us to reject God's Word. He tells us that if you reject God's Word, then you'll know the truth. If you can free yourself from all of this, then your eyes will be opened. Then you'll experience freedom. But the exact opposite is true. Jesus said that if you know His commands and obey them, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Adam and Eve's eyes were indeed opened, but not to enlightenment. They were opened to shame, brokenness, and heartache. Their eyes were uncovered, but it only led to them covering themselves, hiding from each other in shame and hiding from God in fear. They didn't become like God. Listen, Adam and Eve were already like God. They were made in the image of God. They were the image bearers of God. They didn't become like God when they ate the fruit. They became alienated from God. That image of God within them became distorted and broken. People still buy this lie today. To become godlike in knowledge and power so that you can control your own destiny so that you can, you can create your own reality, you can, you can choose your own identity, that this is the ultimate driver of human hubris and suffering from the Pharaohs and the Caesars to modern-day dictators like Xi Jinping or Putin or Hitler or Stalin. This drive to godlike knowledge and power has caused unspeakable human suffering throughout human history. How might you and I be tempted to replace God's Word with our own opinions and ideas? How are we maybe seeking to replace God's authority and power in our lives with our own self-help techniques or our own life coaches or our own, you know, whatever the secular guru is out there with wealth and success and education? Not that education isn't important, but when we try to put that as the ultimate end goal, that that's what's going to solve all of our problems, we've elevated it to an idol. And Eve's final response was to believe the lie instead of the truth. And when she did, we see that Eve viewed the world apart from God's Word. 
She viewed it apart from God's Word. Eve looked at the forbidden fruit and saw it as good for food, as desirable to look at, delightful to look at, desirable for wisdom. Quite literally, she changed her worldview. And Satan does that today. Satan presents us false worldviews all the time because he wants us to see the world apart from a a, a righteous and wrathful God, from a, a holy and loving Father, from a good and gracious shepherd. He wants us to see life apart from all of that. But when we do, we begin to get a distorted, deceptive view. We look through a false lens. And we, we look at our lives, and we look at our world, and we look at the people around us in a way that isn't true, that isn't helpful, that isn't right. Satan today holds out so many alternative narratives to deceive our minds and seduce our hearts. Take your pick from any number of false religions and cults or secular worldviews and philosophies that Satan uses today to deceive minds and seduce hearts. So what are we to do about this? Well, it brings us back to the armor of God. We've got to take up and put on the belt of truth. Quite literally, it says that we are to girdle our, our loins with truth. The, the old King James Version. To girdle your loins with truth, right? That, that's an old way of saying, put on the belt. Pull it tight. And a Roman soldier would put on this belt, and, and a part of the purpose of this belt was to actually gather up his garment so that there was no hindrance. If he's running, if he's fighting, there's nothing to trip him up. Truth helps to remove the hindrances, the things that Satan wants to use to trip us up. Remember, the belt is a part of a defensive armor, right? The belt is there as a part of a defensive armor, which means that truth isn't something that we have to defend. Truth defends us. Think about that. This was kind of a, a, a light bulb moment for me as I was preparing for this series. Because we, we, you know, I understand the impulse to stand up for truth, right? We've got to fight for truth. We've got to defend for truth. But guess what? Truth is true whether somebody believes it or not, right? Truth doesn't need my defense. I need its defense. I don't stand up for truth. I stand on truth. I stand with truth. Truth is given by God to defend and protect us from Satan's schemes. It encircles us. It binds us. It holds us together. It unites all the pieces of this armor that we're going to be looking at into one spiritual force field to protect us. In the days of the prophet Isaiah, the the Jewish leaders were facing the possibility of an Assyrian attack. Assyria had already swept down into the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed its capital, Samaria, and and took away the ten northern tribes. And all that left was Judah in the south. And Jerusalem was now in the sights of the Assyrian army, and the leaders in Jerusalem panicked. And so they started sending out feelers, and they started trying to make alliances with these other kingdoms, especially with Egypt, trusting in them rather than trusting in God. And listen to God's response in Isaiah 28, 15. For you said, and and, and God is kind of summarizing what they're doing. Of course, they didn't say it this way, but God is saying it this way because this is really what they were doing. For you said, we have made a covenant with death. And we have an agreement with Sheol, with the grave. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, talking about the Assyrians, it will not touch us because we have made falsehood our refuge 
and have hidden behind treachery. Such vivid language. The leaders in Jerusalem had made a deal with death. They made a refuge out of falsehood. They hid behind treachery. Jeremiah described this situation in Jerusalem this way. He said, truth has perished. Truth has perished. It has disappeared from their mouths. I wonder what Jeremiah would say about us today. Has truth perished? Has it disappeared from our mouths? Are we seeking refuge in falsehoods? Are we hiding behind treachery? When we believe Satan's lie, when we try to build our lives, our families, our careers, our churches on the seeking sand of Satan's schemes, listen to God's response. He goes on in verse 16. Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level. Hell will sweep away the false refuge. And water will flood your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be dissolved. And your agreement with Sheol will not last. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes through, you will be trampled. God says that their lies, their covenant with death, is only going to speed up their destruction. It's going to make things worse, not better. Instead, God says that justice and righteousness, those are the true foundation. The straight and level cornerstone upon which they should be building their lives and their country. Any other foundation will be flooded and washed away. Now, doesn't this kind of sound like a parable that Jesus told in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 7, Using this very same imagery, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, but it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And it collapsed with a great crash. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our sure and certain foundation. He is the precious cornerstone. And when we build our lives on Him, on truth personified, then no matter the storms we face, we'll be unshakable. We'll be able to stand against whatever Satan sends our way. Because truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the truth. He said that His Word is truth. He said that to obey His Word is to build your lives on truth because truth is a person. It's more than just propositional. Truth is actually relational. It's about relationship. Someone famously said, if you want to get across an idea, wrap it up in a person. That's what God did in the Incarnation. Truth. The Logos, the Word of God made 
flesh. He came to live among us as one of us, to die for our sins and provide eternal life for us. So truth isn't just something you can believe. Truth is actually someone you can know. You can put your trust in Him. And His belt of truth can guard our minds from being deceived and our hearts from being seduced by Satan's crafty schemes of doubt and deceit when we replace Satan's false refuge with God's true foundation. And I want to close just with a few examples of that to get us kind of thinking. And as I go through these, I want you to think about yourself. Which of these false refuges are you maybe seeking to hide behind, to build your life on, and instead you need to replace those lies with the true foundation of God. The first lie is that we try to build on the sinking sand of performance. If I work hard enough, if I do enough good stuff, then I can make something of myself. I can, I can earn God's favor. I can right my wrongs. But we know that that way of thinking only leads to the fear of failure. It leads to disappointment. It leads to anxiety. Instead, the true foundation is not about performance. It's about your position. Your position in Jesus Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are saved by grace through faith and you are placed in Christ. Paul uses this language in Colossians 3. He says that if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, meaning you've died to your past, you've died to your sin, you've died to selfishness, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are in Christ. You don't have to perform. You can't earn God's favor anyway. But you can receive it freely. Another lie. We try to hide behind the false refuge of popularity. If I can make myself likable. If I can fit in with the crowd. If I can just be a fun, loving kind of person who's likable, then I'll find community. I'll find belonging. I'll find love. But the true foundation is personal. It's personal. Popularity is a poor counterfeit substitute for personal relationships. When we realize, first of all, when we realize that we're loved by God, it doesn't matter so much what other people think about us anymore, right? And when we come into that love relationship with God, when we are saved by grace through faith, we're placed in a family. God is our Father, and He gives us brothers and sisters who love us no matter what. That's what church is supposed to be. To find a true community, you don't have to fit in. You don't have to make yourself likable. You don't have to, to plaster on a happy face on a Sunday morning. Come as you are. Be real and authentic and find love and acceptance and grace. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Instead, just as we have been approved by God, notice he says we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. When you realize you as a Christian are already approved by God, it doesn't matter whether you please people or not. A third false refuge is that we search for security in our possessions. Right? If I have enough stuff, if I can just get this latest thing, if I can make enough money, if I can put away enough for the future, then I'll be secure. Then I'll be successful. Then I'll be happy. But we know that's not true. We know that easy come, easy go. 
We know that there's never enough possessions. We're always wanting the, the next, the latest, the newest, the best. Real security isn't found in possessions. It's found in the promises of God. That's the source of real security. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus. Every promise in the Word of God is a yes in Jesus. You don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to worry about it. You can rest in the security that God is your good shepherd, that He will provide for your needs according to the riches of, of God in Christ Jesus, and that your eternal salvation is secure by the seal of the Holy Spirit in your life. Real security is found on the unchanging promises of God that never go, that never fail. Fourth, we like to grasp after and cling to power, don't we? Power, influence, the ability to control our own destiny, to make our own rules. People want power, but the truth is we aren't in charge of things, are we? We aren't in charge of our lives. Things happen that are out of our control. Bad things happen to good people. You can plan and prepare and do all the right things and things can still fall apart, amen? I think 2020 is a great example for us of that. No, you see, power is an illusion, but peace is a true foundation. When we build our lives on the solid rock of Christ, we can have peace. John 16.33, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because you will have suffering in this world. He says, but be courageous, I've conquered I've overcome the world. We can have peace with our Maker. And finally, we like to think that pleasure is the key to happiness and fulfillment in life, don't we? And listen, we live in a hedonistic society. We live in a society that's all about the pleasure. It's about the experience. It's about the food. It's about the, 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 the fun. It's about the party. We live in, in a world that's all tied up in this pleasure. And the lie is if I can feel good enough and have enough fun, I can escape my pain and my past. If I can have enough fun, then I'll have happiness and fulfillment in life. Because after all, isn't life about having fun? Isn't it about living for the weekend? That's the lie of pleasure. But we know the truth, that when the pleasure wears off, the pain is still there. The problems are still there. They didn't go away. The emptiness is never filled. The thirst is never quenched. Instead, we're just left with, we're left with more regret and shame and loneliness and lostness. The true foundation to build our lives on isn't pleasure, it's purpose. It's purpose. We were created by God and for God and only in Him can we find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in our lives. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, you know, uh, Solomon, King Solomon, he kind of spent a period of his life sort of chasing these things down. Is the key to life performance? Is it all about popularity? Is it about having more possessions and power? Is it about pleasure? And he went through and he tested all these things and every one of them came up short. So in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 100. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism kind of takes all of that and summarizes it down into this phrase. I'm sure you've heard it before. That the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the truth today about where you stand with God? Can you honestly say that your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Or is your purpose to serve yourself? To glorify yourself? To enjoy the things that you want to enjoy? To look for pleasure and possessions and power and popularity? Are you living for God or are you living for self? What is the truth today about where you stand spiritually? Are you caught up in Satan's lies? The real happiness comes from those things on the left side of that screen a minute ago. You know, the truth is that there is a holy and loving God who made you. He knows you. He loves you just as you are. But your sin separates you from Him because He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a God of justice. And therefore, our sins, our injustice, separates us from Him. But He's a loving God. So in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, He came down, took on flesh and blood, lived the sinless life you and I could never live, and died as our perfect substitutionary sacrifice. He bore the wrath that you and I deserve. He paid the debt that you and I owe so that we could be forgiven of our sins, made right with God, and spend eternity with Him. That's the truth. Do you know that truth? See, to know that, you've got to reject the lie. You've got to believe the truth. You've got to reject the lie that it's about going to church and doing this and that and generally being a good person. You've got to reject that lie and believe the truth that you need a Savior, that you need to come to God, turning from your sin and trusting in Him, and you will receive that free gift of eternal life. Maybe you need to do that today. I pray that you will. I'm going to be standing down front here in just a moment, and if you need to do that, you need to turn from the lie to the truth to reject your sin and put your trust in Jesus, I invite you to come today, and you will experience those promises of God begin to work in your life. Maybe you are a Christian, and as we went through that list, maybe you identified some little false refuges you kind of tend to hide behind. Maybe you're guilty of, like some people, trying to cover your bases. So I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, but you know... Pleasure and possessions are kind of nice too. I still want to have a little bit of power. Maybe this morning to come to this altar and lay those lies down and say, God, forgive me. Help me to build my life 100% on your true foundation. Maybe you've kind of loosened that belt of truth because it's made you a little uncomfortable. Maybe you've laid it aside altogether. I invite you this morning to come to God and say, God, help me to put on that belt and pull it tight. Help me to trust in your truth. Whatever God is speaking to you today, what matters is we don't just believe it up here, we believe it in here. And that means that we do something about it. What would God have you to do today? Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word and this time of worship. Thank you for the belt of truth. Lord, a belt is, is, a, is a, it's about security. God, we find our security in your truth that never changes. 
It doesn't go out of fashion. It doesn't go out of style. It doesn't change with the popular opinion. Your truth is certain and sure. And if we build our lives on it, we will withstand whatever may come. God, if anyone here today needs to begin to build that foundation of faith and trust in Jesus, I pray that we come today and do that and experience Your grace and mercy. Lord, as Christians, maybe we've just been lax. Maybe we've loosened that belt of truth some, God. Help us to tighten it back up. Help us to dig into Your Word. Help us to be alert and aware of the lies of the devil and to be able to stand against them with Your truth. Father, whatever You're speaking to our hearts, may we obey not only in this moment, in this moment of of initial decision, but every moment and every decision we make as we go out these doors. In Jesus' name we pray.